read with me 1 Timothy chapter 3. You can find this on page 992 of the Bibles provided. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now flip over a few pages to Titus chapter 3. I'm sorry, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Paul, writing to this young pastor, Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So this morning we're going to focus on these qualifications in these lists that I'm, I'm calling a, a Christian's godliness. These qualifications of godliness represented here in the ways that Christians are called to imitate God. We're using this, uh, the, these frameworks again because they're just a, a good shorthand of what Christians are to be. And as we've said many times, these qualifications are notable for how not notable they are. All these things are, are required for, for all Christians with the exception that elders should be able to teach. And that's why they function so well for our purposes. But as we get started this morning, I want us to consider something about um, our culture that, that I just read an observation this week that I've read before. That, that our culture has kind of lost the capacity to do big projects. So this, this commenter was noting that, you know, in the, in the 19th century, we built a transcontinental railroad. And now in the 21st century, the state of California is having trouble getting a, a high-speed rail line built between San Francisco and Los Angeles. The news article I read described it as a multi-billion dollar nightmare. And we, we don't just have to, 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 to drag on California. We could look at our own state, and there is a, an attempt to build a high-speed railroad between Texas, uh, Dallas and Houston that, as far as I know, is, is kind of barely getting off the ground. So these issues are, are not just in one part of our culture. They seem to be kind of endemic. We've kind of lost the ability to do these big projects. I'm not too concerned to talk to you about that today, but I am interested in, in kind of considering um, the, the culture that's necessary to do a big project like that. 
Right? You think back to the 19th century. You had to have, you had to have some unique things in place, right? Maybe the spirit of adventure, this drive for westward expansion. You had to have some, some workers who maybe were a little crazy or a little desperate to be willing to go out and do that in the kind of the wasteland of the, of the West. There had to be something going on there, economic conditions, let's say, cultural conditions, all these things that, that kind of come together for a, a people to, to be willing to work together for a big project. You could look at something like the, the space race in the 1960s and see something similar, right? There was a perceived existential threat from whatever the Russians were doing with their space program, and we had to get ours going. Or, or during uh, the World War II era, the Manhattan Project, right? Something had to be going on to get all these people out in the, the desert to come up with the nuclear bomb. There have to be cultural conditions in place for humans to work together for a major project. Well, today I want to talk to us about a major project that God has for his people, okay? And I want us to use as a kind of a shorthand description of this major project um, something Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. This is Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 27. Now, normally when we go to Ephesians chapter 5 in these verses, we go here to talk about marriage. But if you recall, Paul is, is not only writing about marriage. He, he says, I'm really writing about what Jesus is doing with his people. Okay, so today we're going to go to it and see what Jesus is doing for his people. Listen to what God's word says from Ephesians chapter 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What I want you to see here is Christ's project, right? Christ has this great project to present the church holy and in splendor. That's why he came to die, was so that he could save a people for himself and then sanctify them so that, so that the church becomes full of splendor and blameless. And holy. And I key in on those two words, splendor and holy, because these are words that the Old Testament uses to describe God and, and how we should respond to God. The, the, both First Chronicles and the Psalms tell us to ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship him in the splendor of holiness. So the, the right way to think about God is in the splendor of his holiness, as glorious. And Jesus has come so that God's people would reflect the splendor of God's holiness. He has come to do this grand project. Now, it's Christ's project, right? It's not, we can't really say it's our project, but going back to that idea about what, what cultural conditions have to be in place for the crazy people to go out and build the railroad. Well, I, I want to submit to you, Christ has provided the cultural conditions, these supernatural cultural conditions, by his work, by coming in the form of a man and dying and rising again and ascending. He has, he has laid the foundation for us 
to grow up in every way into maturity. For us as the church to grow up into holiness. For us to be godly. Our great project, the great thing that God has given us to undertake as his people is to be like him, to reflect him, to join with what Christ is doing as as Christ has equipped us by his Holy Spirit power and to reflect the splendor of God's holiness. That's what God has called us to do. That's the project we have. And so to describe that splendor of holiness, to describe that godliness, we're going to use a few of these characteristics that we see in 1 Timothy and Titus. In 1 Timothy, we see in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, that elders are called to be sober-minded. And that word really gets at wisdom. Elders are called to be wise. Christians are called to be wise because God is wise We are to be wise. And then in Titus chapter 3, I'm sorry, sorry, Titus chapter 1 verse 8, we see some more godly characteristics. We see that elders are to be upright. Elders are to be lovers of good. And elders are to be holy. So those are our four characteristics of godliness that we're going to look at today. Wise, good, righteous, and holy. As we pursue wisdom, goodness, righteousness, and holiness, we will come to reflect the splendor of God's holiness. This is the godliness that we are called to pursue. So we're going to start off by looking at this subject of wisdom. I ask you to bear with me for a second while I uh, solve a technical problem I'm having with my phone and computer. This is one of the the great problems of technology. You you never know it's going to work. And you save the wrong file. So starting off with wisdom, we see that God is wise, right? And I want to just direct you to a very brief passage that describes God's wisdom. It's easy to overlook these kinds of things. But the very last verse of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 16, verse 27, Paul ends this glorious letter with a doxology. He says, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Notice he calls him the only wise God. God is claiming kind of sole ownership of this category of wisdom. God is wise. He is only wise. He is wise like no other being is. And and any wisdom that we might have that's true wisdom derives from God. God is the inventor of wisdom. He is the only wise God. And so we are to be wise, we are to be godly in the way that God is godly. We are to reflect his wisdom. So we have to ask ourselves, where is that wisdom evident in our life and and how do we get it? How do we grow in that wisdom? If we want to be wise like God, what does that look like? But in each of, these, uh, each of these attributes, I want to spend some time reflecting more carefully on how God is wise, how God is good, how God is righteous, how God is holy. And then, then from that derive our own um, approach to these topics. So let's, let's explore a little more the wisdom 
of God? What does it mean for, be, for God to be wise? Well, we could look at God's wisdom in a, in a variety of ways, but one, one way to start off is saying that God's wisdom is his, his skill in doing the right thing and using the right means. That wisdom involves both of those things. God knows what is right because he is truth and righteousness himself, and God pursues what is right. Okay? So those two things are essential. He always does what is right, and he does it in the right way. And that has a glorious effects on our ability to trust him, right? We know that whatever my God ordains is right, and we know that all the means God uses in pursuing that end, those are right as well. So we can trust God. We can entrust ourselves to him. God is wise. As we think about our response to wisdom, how, how we might grow in wisdom, we can start by, by that humility that says, I accept what God has wrought, right? If God has, God has superintended my life to bring me to this place, then it must be wise. I must be experiencing in some form the wisdom of God with my relationships, with my finances, with how my kids are doing. That, that in some way, this is an evidence of God's wisdom. The scriptures are clear that when we look around at the created order, we see God's wisdom. And when we look at how God sustains his people, we see God's wisdom. So everywhere we look, we, we have opportunity to see God's wisdom but the question is, how do we respond to what we see? Do we respond with kind of, you know, I don't think he's very wise. Do we reject God's wisdom? Or do we humbly submit to it? And do we say, God must be wiser than me. I can't know everything, but I know the one who does know everything. I can't know how this should go, but God does. And so I entrust myself to the wisdom of God. Are you entrusting yourself to God in all the areas of life? You know, I think one of the difficult things is when you look back at your life and, and you see how things have gone, you know that where you are right now is, is both a function of just the providence of God, things maybe you had no control over, but also your own past decisions, right? We, we, have, we can kind of trace the dots that got us from where we were 20 years ago to where we are right now, or even a year ago, right? And we wonder, well... If I made a foolish choice, was that God's wisdom? But sometimes, you know, you, you acknowledge those choices were made, but now those choices have, have left you in a place where you're in a certain situation. You must love these people that you're with, right? Christian virtue commands you to do that. Godliness does. You must, you know, make money and have a job. You must navigate this situation. There, there are things about your situation, maybe they were based on past foolish mistakes, but here you are. Isn't the wisdom of God there with you now in those things? Hasn't God in his wisdom put you where he wants you for the sake of your growth in wisdom and in grace? So do you look around at your situation and see that God is in it? Or do you look around at your situation and say, God, you must get me out of it? I think that's how wisdom helps our prayers. I mean, most of us, I think, rightly, when we're in a hard situation, we pray, Lord, deliver me. Take this away. And I, I say that's a good prayer to pray. I would just ask you, 
add a prayer. Lord, give me wisdom. If you don't take this away, how to navigate this situation? Lord, give me wisdom. If you, if you don't miraculously change my spouse, help me to love them in a way that reflects your wisdom. So keep praying, pleading with God. Take away that thorn in your flesh, but also plead with God. Ask him to give you wisdom. Again, we've, we've referenced this several times as we looked at Christian maturity, but isn't it exactly that what James tells us to do? To, 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 if you lack wisdom, ask of God. And, and he tells us how to ask, right? We, we don't ask thinking that he's a stingy God, but we ask knowing that he gives abundantly, generously, without reproach, right? There's no finger wagging when God gives us wisdom to love our difficult child, to endure in a hard season of life, to suffer well. God delights to give us that kind of wisdom. So if we want to grow in wisdom, we should ask for it. We should seek to trust God and trust his wisdom. I think you might be able to say that Christians are those who outsource their wisdom to God. We know we don't have it, but he does. And so we, we look to him for it. Mature Christians are those who frequently turn to God and ask him for wisdom. There's one other way I'd like us to consider how to grow in wisdom. And that is that we are to put on the mind of Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 2.16, the Apostle Paul says that Christians have the mind of Christ, right? We also see this in Philippians 2, where we're to let this mind of Christ be in us. So, so we have the mind of Christ. It's a kind of a gift possession that God would give his people. How do we put on the mind of Christ? Well, listen to what Pastor Mark Jones says that this means. Um, this is coming from his book, God Is, which is a devotional guide to the attributes of God. And I would really encourage you to get it and read it. He says, only with a Christian mind, whereby the Spirit leads us, are we able to understand the wisdom of God. By following the Spirit's guidance, we can comprehend our suffering in light of Christ and our future glory in light of His. We love service because Christ became a servant. And we love our enemies because Christ loved His. In other words, to apply knowledge wisely simply means to apply the mind of Christ in every situation. It's beautifully simple, obviously very hard to do. But I find this to be such a helpful description of wisdom because I am personally tempted to think of wisdom as a kind of, of cleverness that helps me get ahead, right? Help me outfox the other guy. But that's, that's not at all what we're talking about here, right? It's, it's the wisdom that's able to, to see what God sees, the mind of Christ is oriented first towards God and then towards others. It's wisdom to see and to esteem trusting God more than trusting myself. It's wisdom that delights in serving others. It's wisdom that delights in suffering well, that desires to suffer well. So do you want that kind of wisdom? That's the kind of wisdom God is calling us to grow in. That's the kind of wisdom we're seeking to have as mature Christians. 
I think this is so important because we might imagine that our, our difficulties or our sufferings are some kind of sign that God is unhappy with us, that something's gone terribly wrong. But if God is teaching you through a difficult time, he's maturing you. He's helping you grow in the mind of Christ. It's exactly where we want to be as a Christian, to be growing and trusting God the way that Jesus did and in suffering and loving others the way that Jesus did. When we think about those men that we would call as elders or the the men and women we might call as deacons, we should look for the mind of Christ in them. Are they examples of faith in the Lord during times of trials? Are their lives marked by service the way Christ's was? Do they possess wisdom from above? Are they seeking to grow in it? We should look at their lives to see if they exhibit those characteristics. Of course, these aren't only questions for evaluating others. They're questions for evaluating our own lives. God is perfectly wise. Do you have his wisdom? That's the first way to grow in godliness is to be wise. Our next marker of maturity is that Christians are good. Paul says that Christians love what is good. And again, this is rooted in God's own character. Our our theological theme this morning has already led us to reflect on God's goodness. He is good. Jesus testifies about God's goodness when the rich young ruler calls him good teacher. Jesus responds by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Notice again, just as with wisdom, God is claiming exclusive uh, ownership of goodness. God is good. Goodness is defined by what God is. And we see God's goodness in his works, in his works of creation and redemption. Again, that was why we read the creation account, that repeated refrain, like five or six times, and God saw that it was good. When God acts, Whether in creation or redemption, his works are good because he is good. God cannot do anything that is not good. So when God chooses to act, it must necessarily be a good action. We can see God's goodness again in those first two chapters of Genesis when we meditate on the original state of mankind. Were you, were you paying attention, not even just mankind, but, but, but nature and animals as well? God provided them abundantly, right? Every kind of fruit was there for the people to eat. And even the animals had all the green vegetation to eat. He placed Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden to work and to keep. He made them happy and holy. He blessed them with his word and his commands. God's goodness was to overflow through Adam and Eve. It was kind of a reverberation of goodness that was, to, that was to flow out from Eden as Adam and Eve worshipped him. So we see that God's goodness is bountiful, generous, overflowing, growing goodness. Mark Jones says that wisdom speaks to God's work of directing and accomplishing creation, but God's goodness provides the motive. Why did God create? Because he's good. He freely made all that is because it pleases him to do so. He is a good God. Not only do we see God's goodness in 
creation, but even more so do we see it in redemption. We see God's goodness in Christ. Now, the human race's track record of responding to God's goodness is a bad one, right? We respond to God's goodness with rebellion. So instead of worshiping and obeying our good God, Adam and Eve and all of us have turned away from God's goodness. And because of our sin, God would be right to destroy us. His judgment on us would in no way compromise his goodness. And yet, in his goodness, he offers redemption through Jesus Christ. Listen to how Titus 3, 3 through 7 describes God's saving goodness. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So Paul lays it out very plainly for us there, right? By, by nature, none of us are good. But God delights to show goodness and love to us in Jesus Christ. He describes the, the coming of Jesus Christ when the goodness of our Savior appeared. But Jesus' coming meant that for a time he did not experience God's goodness, right? Right? Jesus suffered the wrath of God so that by faith in his work, we can enjoy God's love. God's goodness to sinners comes at the cost of Christ's suffering and death. Why should God be so good to us? I mean, judgment makes some sense, right? If you, if you disobey the Holy One, you should be judged. But why, why should God be good? Only the goodness of God explains his goodness. God delights to show mercy to sinners, even though that mercy comes at the, at the price of the Son of God's life. Christ died so that we could experience God's goodness. With that kind of goodness defined, then we can consider what it means for us to be good or for Christians to love what is good, as Paul says. We need to see that to love what is good is first and foremost to love the gospel. We love what is good by receiving by faith what Christ has done for us. We receive by faith Christ, God, God's goodness to us in Christ. That's where loving what is good begins. Christians love the goodness of the gospel. I think you could divide this love of the goodness of the gospel up into two, two different categories. We, we can think of loving the goodness of the gospel in an experiential way. We, we love it because it saves us. It's where we find life. You get a sense of this kind of love of God's goodness when the psalmist calls us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? It's to have this experience of God's goodness through, through saving faith. But we can also love the gospel by loving the spread and evidence and growth of the gospel. Right? Those who love what is good rejoice to see the gospel proclaimed. 
They rejoice to see gospel growth in Christians. This is an important quality for elders especially. One of the worst things for a church would be an elder that really only is interested in, in seeing you know, numerical growth in his own church, but has a kind of rivalry with the pastor down the street. No, lovers of good love to see gospel fruit wherever it crops up. So one way to evaluate whether you are a lover of good is to examine your love for the spread of the gospel. Do you rejoice to see gospel growth and gospel fruit? Are you praying regularly and urgently for the spread of the gospel? Are you using your money to help with the spread of the gospel and supporting gospel ministry? One of the reasons we pray for other churches each week is because we love the gospel. And we rejoice to see other churches preaching the gospel and to see their growth in the gospel. We want to be the kinds of Christians who are excited to see revival break out, even when it happens at the church down the street and not ours, because it's gospel growth. So being a lover of good begins there with love for the gospel, but it doesn't end there. Christians are called to imitate God by doing good to others. Because God has saved us, we can do good. We can characterize this goodness in terms of obeying God's good law. Right? That's one way we do good. We love the ways of God. This is what the writer of Psalm 1 says, that the, that the lover of good has delight in the law of the Lord, and he dwells on it day and night. So we, we love what is good by being devoted to God's commands. Or think of Christ's command to love God and love neighbor. Or Christ's command to love our enemies. We do good when we love and pray for our enemies. So ask yourself, do you delight in God's good ways or do they rub you the wrong way? Do you find joy in obedience to God or are you looking for loopholes the way that the first century religious leaders were? Another way to think of loving the good is to consider God's abundance and his generosity. We've seen how it pleased God to bless his creatures, to provide for their every need We see how even now God continues to make rain fall on the just and unjust. In some ways, we could say God's goodness is, is even broader than his mercy. He's good to all, right? Well, do we imitate God in that? Are we like him in our generosity? If you want to know, do I love the good? Ask yourself, is there, is there any sign of that godly generosity in my life? Am I generous Or miserly? Do you love the good? A final question to ask regarding our love of goodness is whether we love those who have received God's goodness. The Apostle Paul commands in Galatians 6, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those to the house of the household of faith. So do you love those upon whom God has poured out his goodness. God wants his people to have special care for each other. So, so we recognize in our church, we're a defined group of people and we seek to, to especially help and care for each other, to do good to one another, to pray for and encourage and help where we can. Those of us who've tasted and seen that the Lord is good by faith in Christ will do good. 
We will love what is good. Are you growing in doing good? Are you growing in your love for God's good ways? All this talk about good really clings off the, clings off the ears of a modern person, right? Our worldly cynicism is very suspicious that anyone could kind of have this idealistic love of the good. But a scriptural realism tells us that it's true that by nature none of us are good, but that God truly is good. And that by faith we can know his goodness. And as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can come to love God's goodness and do good ourselves. So we, we're kind of rehabilitating this idea of the do-gooder, right? That's what we want to be, people who do good by faith in Christ. So is your life marked more by that worldly cynicism or by faith in a good God? Christians are good. They love what is good and they do good. So we've seen that Christians are wise and they love what is good. Next, we're going to look at that, the fact that Christians are righteous, or as Paul says in the qualifications for elders, they are upright. Christians are righteous, of course, because God is righteous. This characteristic is really hard to distinguish from God's goodness, but we might think of it as righteousness is the, is the response to evil, God's good response to evil. Both righteousness and goodness describe God's moral perfection, but a righteous God who loves good also hates and punishes what is evil. He would not be good if he tolerated evil and approved of it. So our righteous God only loves what is good and he punishes what is evil. We get a sense of this righteous character in Psalm 7 verses 11 through 13. The psalmist writes, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. You see how God's righteousness is his passion for his own honor and glory and dignity. He is righteously angry at those who do not repent and worship him. Jesus Christ also shows us the righteousness of God. Consider the way that he confronted the false righteousness of the religious leaders of his day. He said to them in Matthew 23, 28, You outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus hated their hypocritical and superficial righteousness. And he warned them that the wrath of God was coming upon them because of their superficial righteousness, their hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus shows us one who is perfectly upright. He was zealous for good works and for the honor of God. So he righteously cleansed God's temple of those who had turned it into a den of thieves. Do you have a sense of the righteousness of God? Do you take your sin seriously? So Jesus Christ, as he lived on this earth, shows us what a righteous man is like, but he also shows us God's righteousness in another way. In the Son of God's suffering on the cross, we see 
God's righteous judgment of sin. Jesus bore the righteous wrath of God against sin so that God can justify those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So the cross shows us how God can be perfectly righteous and yet abundant in grace to unrighteous people. God graciously declares righteous those who trust in Christ. Without compromising or undermining his own righteousness, he pours out mercy on the unrighteous who believe in Jesus. They are counted righteous by their faith in Christ. This is the gospel, right? This is the good news. So if you, if you feel the weight of your own unrighteousness in the eyes of God, you're right to feel that weight. But let it turn you to the cross where there is relief for the unrighteous. By faith in what Christ did, your, your sin can be paid for. You can be forgiven in the eyes of the righteous God. Because Christians are those who believe in the cross, we should be both the most gracious people and the most righteous people. Naturally, we all have a hard time reconciling those two traits, right? Naturally speaking, the people you know in your life who are the most zealous for righteousness and following rules are often the least gracious, right? Like we all have some neighbors in our HOA who are zealous for the HOA rules, right? And they are not gracious for the trash can that gets left out, right? And on the other hand, those people that, you know, kind of pride themselves on being gracious, you know, they don't care very much about the rules. But Christians should be different. Not about HOA rules necessarily, but about our view of righteousness and grace. Christians seek to be upright because we know the seriousness of sin. Sin is rebellion against a good and wise and righteous God. We know that unrepentant sin destroys and condemns people to hell. Sin separates us from God. We cannot be flippant about sin because sin destroys. Sin dishonors God. And we know that for sin to be paid for, it required the death of Christ. So Christians must be upright because we we see what the stakes are. And yet Christians are gracious because we know that we did nothing to merit God's grace in our own lives. We look on our unbelieving family members and and friends and neighbors with compassion, right? Because we, we see that we were once very much like them, but God showed us grace. But a key difference is our compassion doesn't lead us to to dismiss their sin or to say it's no big deal. Our compassion actually drives us to lovingly confront them with their sin. To warn them, to tell them your your sin is is an offense against your creator and it's, it's destroying you. And if you don't repent of your sin, you will be condemned before God at the last day. Our compassion and our our graciousness leads us to loving confrontation with the truth about God's righteousness and judgment. And so to be upright means to imitate God's own hatred of sin and to delight in God's solution for sin. Now this, of course, should begin with ourselves. Before we think about applying it to someone else, 
It means we take our own sin seriously. We seek to repent of it, to root it out. That's the righteous response to sin. So the righteous are frequent visitors to God's throne room where we confess our sin and seek forgiveness by his grace. Perhaps something that is easy to miss in our fight with sin is that both sin and righteousness are habit forming. Giving into sin once makes it easier to give into sin a, a second time and so on. But likewise, working hard with Christ's help to pursue righteousness can work in us a greater love for righteousness. Do you realize that righteousness is something you can practice? Not by sheer force of will, but by faith in Christ. You can practice righteousness. So how do you practice righteousness? Well, you you start by knowing what is righteous. Instruct yourself with God's word about what is right and wrong according to God's law. Attend to God's word in other places too, in sermons like this one, or or watching the the righteous lives of others that you know, or by reading good Christian books. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, this glorious verse about the inspiration of Scripture, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. Would you want to train yourself and practice righteousness? Well, attend to God's Word. And then, with God's help, practice obeying God. Practice repenting when you sin. These are the, the Holy Spirit Inspired and empowered habits that mark those mature in Christ. Practice obedience. Practice repentance. Practice righteousness. To be upright also affects the way we relate to other Christians. If we see a brother or sister in sin, uprightness leads us to gently warn them. That's what Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 1. Those who are spiritual should restore those who are sinning in a spirit of gentleness. Now, there's no script for how this conversation goes when we confront each other. We'd we'd like it if there was, if the Lord just included in the back of the Bible, kind of, okay, here's this situation, here's what you say. The best way to prepare, though, is to do the things we've been talking about. Pursue godliness. Pursue wisdom. Pursue a love for what is good. Pursue righteousness. As you pursue those things, you will be equipped to love your brothers and sisters well whether they're sinning or suffering, or whether they're doing great. If you're growing in wisdom and good, goodness and righteousness, you're going to be well-equipped to serve and help others grow in their faith. We should want to grow in these characteristics, not because we want to kind of unlock new levels of spiritual achievement for ourselves. We should want to grow in these things because they glorify God and because they help others. So these characteristics that we're talking about of mature Christians, they're not techniques for pursuing a better Christian life, right? These aren't three simple steps to a better Christian life. They are virtues worth pursuing because God is glorious, because God is worth our lives, and because God intends to use us in building up his church. So we should seek these for the glory of God and for the good of other Christians, This includes our righteousness. Don't pursue righteousness because you want to feel good about yourself. 
Don't pursue righteousness because you, you don't want to have to ask God for forgiveness anymore. God is not delighted in that kind of righteousness. We pursue righteousness so that we can fellowship with God. Do you understand that? By pursuing obedience, you fellowship with God. By pursuing repentance, when you disobey, you fellowship with God. I mean, we have to all admit our, our desire for righteousness has a lot to do with our, our own vanity, our own pride and record of success. But a godly desire for righteousness comes from knowing that God gives us righteousness through faith in Jesus. It's a gift we receive. First and foremost, God imputes righteousness to those who believe in Christ. And only when we've grasped that, that, we, that we're counted righteous by faith in Christ, then we can grow in pursuing righteousness. So Christians pursue righteousness. The last characteristic we're going to look at is that Christians are holy. They are to be holy as their God is holy. This is a very simple requirement. You can find several passages in the Old and New Testament that explicitly say this. Be holy because God is holy. Very simple. But very difficult to understand what holiness really is. I was actually struck by reading that Mark Jones book I told you about that I didn't think his chapter in holiness was very helpful at all. It just seemed like all the other ones. So it's a challenge to, to characterize this. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll think the same about my attempt here. But most basically, I think holiness means something like having to do with God. God's name is holy. The place where God dwells is holy. And this is true both of his heavenly dwelling and of his earthly tabernacle in the Old Testament. We know that God's redeemed people are holy. The Sabbath day is called holy in Genesis chapter 2 because God blessed it and because on it God rested from all his labors. So we could say maybe God's time is holy. We see that again when God tells them to set aside certain holy times for feasts. Gifts and sacrifices that were offered to God, they were considered holy. God's laws and God's ways are holy. God's promises are holy. Whatever belongs to God is holy. The Bible also uses superlatives to speak of God's holiness. So we already talked about this one, that the scripture describes God's splendor of holiness. And he does, the scripture does that in conjunction with God's glorious name. In Exodus 15, when, when the song of praise after the deliverance from Egypt, we read that the Lord is majestic in holiness. In Isaiah 63 and 64, the Lord's dwelling place is called holy and beautiful. So God's holiness is, is splendorous. It's magnificent. It's majestic. It's beautiful. In the passage that started off our service today, we see the, the cherubim say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the words holy, I believe, is God's way of putting his indescribable majesty into words. If God wants to describe what is indescribable, he says, holy, I am holy. The word holy tells us of the godness of God. He is like no other. He is uniquely holy. So because of God's infinite, infinity, his majesty and greatness, we should not be surprised 
that we have trouble grasping his holiness, right? Because God is just beyond us. If it, we're talking about kind of the pure, uncut holiness of God, we can't grasp it. It's beyond us. But even here, the Lord has not left us without a way of knowing his holiness. We have his word, but we also have his son, Jesus. Jesus Christ shows us God's holiness. So we confess in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? And when the angel was prophesying to Mary about Jesus' birth, he called Jesus holy. He said, the child to be born shall be called holy, the Son of God. Jesus is the Holy One. He's the Holy One prophesied in Psalm 16 when it says that God will not allow his Holy One to see corruption. The New Testament applies that verse to Jesus. In one of his sermons in Acts chapter 3, Peter describes Jesus as the Holy and Righteous One whom the Jews rejected. So we can know the Holy God of the universe, that God I just said is beyond our comprehension, completely set apart, exalted over everything. We can know him by looking at Jesus, the Son of God who took on flesh. This is the reason that Jesus came. So that unholy, sinful people like us could be cleansed of our sin, could be cleansed of our impurities that would keep us from the holy God. In cleansing us, he allows us to enter into God's holy presence. We can have fellowship with the Holy One through Jesus Christ. So the holiness of God is revealed in Jesus and is specifically revealed on Christ's cross. On Christ's cross, the love and justice of God are poured out on Christ so that sinners can be saved. So when we look upon the judgment poured out against sin on Christ, we are seeing God's holiness. And we look upon the love of God as the Son of God voluntarily took on flesh to be crucified. When we look upon his love there, we see the holiness of God. Not only do we see God's holiness, but we can receive its benefits by faith in the cross of Christ. The abundant blessings of the holy God are ours by faith in Jesus and what he did for, for us there. One Puritan writer said something about how God's holiness is God's blessedness of himself. And in, in the cross, we get to enjoy that blessedness through faith in Jesus and fellowship with God's Holy One. The effect of God's holy work for us is that we should be holy as he is holy. So as God's people in Christ, we are called holy and beloved by God. We are filled with God's Holy Spirit. In describing the Christian life in Ephesians 4, Paul says we're to put off the old corrupt self and we're to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So do you see that the new life God has created in you, it's holy life. It's God's own holy life. And Christ is working through his word to present us, as we began the sermon, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. That is what Christ's work in us is meant to produce. Much in the same way we understand justification and righteousness, we are to understand holiness and sanctification. 
So we were declared righteous by faith in Christ, and then the Lord commands us to be righteous, to grow in righteousness. Similarly, we are God's holy ones by virtue of his redeeming work, and we are commanded to be holy. So in our meetings with Tom, we've often had to talk about what a saint is, right? A saint is not what the Catholic Church says. A saint is one of God's holy ones. We are all saints by virtue of what God has done in our lives. And because we are holy, we are to grow in holiness. According to 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, the Lord has saved us and called us into a holy calling. And we are to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Holiness is to mark our lives. I hope in you, as you hear this exposition of holiness, you're convicted of the weight of what it means to be one of God's holy people. I wonder if it might help to think of the phrase, the sanctity of life. It's an important part of the Christian worldview. We use this phrase, the sanctity of life, to speak of the value of human life. But do you know what the word sanctity means? It's just a word that means holy, that which is holy. By saying that phrase, we're professing all human life is holy because it bears the image of the holy God. It is of God, right? Now, even though our legal system is imperfect, this reality of the sanctity of human life is is recognized in our laws. Our law recognizes it's a grave and serious thing to take human life. A life made in God's image. Now to say human life is holy is not to say that every human being is is holy in the way Christians are. To say every human being is saved. But to say human life is holy is to remind us of where human life comes from. It reminds us that ultimately life and death are in God's hands. So we don't have the authority to take the, the life of an unborn baby. We don't have the authority to assist a, a sick person with their suicide, right? And only in certain, certain circumstances are human beings given the right to take a life, as perhaps in war or, or administering the death penalty, right? It's a grave thing because human life belongs to God. Life is holy because life is God's. And so there should be a reverence about the way we approach life and death because of the, the sanctity of life. Well, if we recognize the gravity of the, the sanctity of sort of natural human life, then we're a step closer, I think, to understanding the gravity of what holiness should mean for a Christian. See, Christians belong to God twice. We are created by God and we are redeemed by God. So do you understand yourself to be belonging to God? That God owns you. And if so, how are you regarding this holy, precious gift that God has given you? If he's redeemed you, if he's purchased you by the blood of the Son of God, do you esteem what God has done for you? And how are you esteeming this holy, precious reality in others? How do you esteem the the holy ones all around you here in in this room, your brothers and sisters in the church? Do you realize we all belong to a holy God? How is the weight of that influencing your life? One of the the 
momentous things about what we plan to do in a couple weeks when we welcome new members is we're saying here are, here are two holy ones that have been bought with Christ's blood and we are taking on the sober responsibility of helping them grow in Christ. As we baptize Tom, we're saying we recognize Tom has, has professed faith in Christ by, by God's miraculous work. Tom has become one of Christ's holy ones. And we're, we're taking him in to encourage him and help him grow in Christ. And he's, he's committing to do that for us as well as he joins our church. Do we see this, the, the weight and the seriousness of this? Holy, holiness should give us a sense of that seriousness and sobriety. It's not a game that we're playing here. But we also want to see this is, this is not anti-joy either. To be holy is to be blessed. Remember, joy is the fruit of the Spirit. If we want a one-stop shop for the holy Christian life, the fruit of the Spirit is a, a good place to go. That's why I had Brother Glenn read it for us earlier. Paul contrasts the work of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. He contrasts those who have, who have given in to their passions with those who have been saved and who, who manifest this fruit. <clears throat> So those who belong to Christ, he says, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and they live by his Holy Spirit. And what does that look like? It looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. One observation that I found really helpful in Mark Jones's book on God, on the chapter on the simplicity of God, is that he notes that there is only one singular fruit mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. And all of our English translations help us see that. They say, the fruit of the Spirit is. It doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit are. It's a singular verb. So this is not a list of fruits. There is one God, there is one Spirit, and one fruit. And it looks like this multifaceted description we see in Galatians 5.22. So when we evaluate our life by the fruit of the Spirit, we can't pick love and say, well, I'm really good at love. Self-control, I kind of get to leave to the side. No, we, we could put it this way. There's no such thing as Christian love that is not joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, gentle, and self-controlled love. Our love has to be marked by all of those things. Our self-control has to be marked by, by love and gentleness. These all hang together. So we want to put on holiness, put on the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Christians are holy. We know that we don't belong to ourselves, we belong to Christ. And because we are holy, we seek to put on holiness. Do you give much thought to considering this? Do you consider God's holiness? And do you consider that God has given you a holy calling. Christians are holy. As we spent these last few weeks looking at what a mature Christian is, what we've seen is that character is very important to God. Since we're taking this list of character traits from our qualifications for elders, then it becomes really clear that character is is vitally important for our leaders. Right? We could... We could think about the way that churches might pick a pastor or choose elders to serve them. And they might pick the ones that are most visibly successful, that are leading the largest companies in their church, or or that seem to have a lot of converts. 
But Paul would have us first look at the man's character. Even if he might be visibly successful, without this godly character, he will be a failure. It may only ever be a private failure, but most of the time it will also be a public disaster. So when we're evaluating men to serve as our pastors, we should carefully examine their character. And men, if you're here in this room and you desire this noble task of serving as an overseer, which I really hope many of you do, then you should pay attention to your life and your doctrine. Pay attention to your character. I hope it's clear that character matters for the church's leaders. But I I hope it's also clear, and the reason we've done this thing of defining Christian maturity this way, is that character matters for every Christian. The Lord wants us all to be growing in godliness. He wants us all to be wise and good and righteous and holy. He desires us for our own good and because it brings him glory. The Lord's ways are good and we will save our lives when we lose them for Christ's sake. Christ gave his life not only to save us, but also to make us like himself. And the Lord desires this growth in holiness, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the church. If you just read a little further in Galatians chapter 5 and get into chapter 6, you see that Paul says that those who are spiritual, when they see a brother caught in sin, should restore that brother in a spirit of gentleness. The church needs your godliness. The church needs godly pastors and elders and godly church members to help each other grow in Christ and maturity. If we want our church to be a bright light of gospel witness, we must all be devoted to this project. This project that Christ has equipped us for. This project that Christ has given us. He's given us all that we need for life and godliness. He's given us his spirit. He's given the church pastors and teachers all so that we can grow up into Christ. This is our great goal. So your individual Christian life is not a project of individual self-improvement. Godliness is a goal for us all to do together. It's the goal of God's work. Godliness is for the sake of God's glory and the spread and growth of the gospel through the church. Our godliness together is for the sake of magnifying the glory of God in the splendor of holiness. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help. We are all very aware of the ways we are not godly, the ways that we are foolish and don't love what is good the ways we indulge unrighteousness, the flippancy with which we take our personal holiness and the holiness of your church. So we need your help, Father. We need your help both to to see these things. We need your help to confess them and to seek repentance. We need your help to catch a, a vision for your desire to see your church grow into the image of Christ, to be presented to him without spot or wrinkle, blameless and holy in splendor. Father, we thank you for this great work that Christ is doing. It's not something we could have ever thought of. It's only because of your goodness that you chose to do this work, first in creation and then in redemption. And so we pray that you would give us a radical joy 
that we be completely devoted to the gospel. For Christ's sake, amen.